The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Congratulations on this victory. I obviously wouldn't be here without you. No, but you won the election legitimately. I won. Let's just leave it at that. It's politics. Nothing's ever what it seems. But this is just the first step if we're going to move forward. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, February 20th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So are things really as... They seem. Political events of late have apparently taken a turn in the right direction on a number of political fronts, particularly in Britain and in the United States. Or is that just an illusion? Do we still have a long way to go before we can be assured of any significant positive change in recent political directions? Here to help me answer those questions and others today is none other than our very regular contributor to Just Right, Dr. Salim Mansour, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Western University. Nice to see you in front of the microphone again, Salim. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bob, for inviting me. We'll get right underway as soon as we remind our listeners, as we usually do, to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. So let's begin with a quick recap of the significant good news political events of late, and then we'll pick a few of them to zero in on, and maybe some bad news too. How's that sound, Celine? That sounds good. Well, certainly a lot has happened since you and I got together last personally, one-on-one. Where do we start? I mean, what would you consider some of the more positive direction well, events? Well, where we are, we are now past the midpoint of February, so looking back, beginning with the new year, it seemed that the world is still, you know, shaking and, and turbulent, and there are lots and lots of problems in terms of globalism, climate change issues, immigration, migration, and concerns about the economy. But in the middle of all of that, there are also some positive developments that we can dwell upon. And the one that strikes me right off the bat on the positive side is finally Great Britain made its Brexit on January 31st. Britain is no longer a member of the European Union. And so that took time. It took time since the Brexit referendum in June 2016 Mm -hmm. and had to go through the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Theresa May, who tried to juggle with it, whether Britain will remain, Britain will exit, what sort of conditionality, and so on and so forth. Britain, of course, the referendum showed how greatly 
Britain has been divided over the issue. Uh, the Brexit won uh, the referendum by what a few points. I think the vote was 53 to 48 or something of that nature. So by two or three points they won. And the remainers, led by the Labour Party and within the Conservative Party, those who were the remainers, tried to slow down the process or, in fact, reverse the process, possibly have a second referendum. And this took four years that the people had voted in the world's oldest democracy and given their verdict, given their view when asked the question, do you want to remain or do you want to leave the European Union, and they had voted to leave, the parliament couldn't decide. But finally, they had a leadership change. Boris Johnson became the new leader of the Conservative Party. He called for a December election that happened just before Christmas, and he won a landslide majority an immense majority, defeated Jeremy Corman and the Labour. And with that vote, guaranteed that he would implement Brexit, which has now happened as of January the 31st. And it, was quite, it was quite a dramatic event, and, and the opposition was very interesting in the European Parliament. You know what I got the sense of out of that European Parliament? It was as if it was a Democratic Party seat. <laughs> sitting in that parliament, their attitudes were so, you know, un, unusually hostile in a way. It wasn't as if they were accepting their fate gracefully in any sort of way. Am I misreading that? No, you're not misreading this. The idea that Britain or a segment of the British population, a majority of the population, had voted to leave the European Union came as a shocker, but it came as a shocker also in the sense that the people who voted are considered the uninformed, what Hillary Clinton called the Americans subsequently in 2016 during the lead-up to the 2016 election in the United States, the deplorables. Right. So, yes, uh, this was the deplorables uh, in Britain had voted to leave the European Union when all of the elite right across the spectrum, the political elite in the Conservative Party, joined by the union leaders with the Labour Party, the academic elite, the business elite, the corporate media, they were all firmly behind Remain. Mm -hmm. uh, it is the common people and the people outside of the great metropolitan centers in Britain. That is, the people who voted for Remain were concentrated in places like London and Birmingham and Manchester. But the people outside these urban nodes voted for Brexit. And so this raises the whole question that we have been talking, you, Bob, you and I, we have been talking for quite some time over the past years. years. <laughs> this is about globalism. Mm -hmm. The European Union is a miniature version of globalism. That is that a higher supranational body, an international organization, in this case the European Union, and then the higher one is the United Nations, will make the laws, will make the decisions that then the individual member states have to follow. In other words, it is the slow whittling away of the national sovereignty 
of the individual member states. Which on its face, you know, to me seems so implausible and unworkable. You see this being the end of the European Union? Because I'm already hearing about other countries within the Union considering doing their own exits. Is is that a, a viable alternative in the near future? Or do you... Or is that just... Um well, I mean, you have to examine what... what it's just, again, like the U- United Nations. In the case of the European Union, you have to get down into the weeds and examine what are the pillars and are the pillars. Have they gone that much rotten that the whole thing will collapse because Britain has made their exit? And now there are other political parties in Italy, in Portugal, in the Netherlands that wants to follow in some ways the British example, and get out of this huge, complex, supranational organization that wants to dictate the unelected representatives who run the European Union, that is the European Commission based in uh, Brussels and Stuttgart, who run the European Union, they are unelected, they are therefore not accountable to any of the people in all of these various states, and they decide what the important issues are and will make the legislatures in those respective member states abide by the rules or there is going to be heavy penalty. So the question that emerged in British politics was, what is our parliament supposed to do? What is our elected member supposed to do? Do they represent us or they represent Brussels? and Stuttgart, and, you know, what happens to our history, our culture, as the European Union dictates what should be the issues that are important and how they should be managed. I think to contextualize this, a little history lesson might be interesting, you know, I mean, how this all came about. So you guys go through uh, prime ministers like I go through Cinnabons. I mean, it's ridiculous how how often you seem to be going through them. But that is what that is what the European debate has done. I mean, I mean, arguably, I've personally got rid of two prime ministers. <laughs> I mean, Mrs. May resigned last year, the day after the European elections. Mm-hmm. You know, because we'd smashed her. Mm-hmm. She went, mm-hmm. and Cameron resigned because I forced him to call a referendum, mm-hmm. which he lost. So yeah, it's been a. I mean, we have had in five years in the UK, we've had a major national referendum and three general elections. Nothing like it has ever been seen before. And the reason is this. The referendum, we were promised, however we voted, it would be delivered. The will of the people would be respected. But was it hell? (laughs) Was it hell? The establishment trying their best not to deliver Brexit but then in the end being forced to do so. So you get rid of the prime ministers, but you you also got rid of one of my favorite guys, the guy who's just like, order, order. Who was that guy? He was great. Yeah, thank goodness he's gone. Uh, <laughs> he, he may have been entertaining to yeah. an American public. No, to but, Americans, but, that but, was great. But believe you me, he was using every trick in the book to try and stop Brexit from happening. So, What was his role? Well, the Speaker of the Parliament... I mean, he has the casting vote, if, 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 mm-hmm. if there was a tie. His job is to decide what the order of business. Okay, so it's the, like our Speaker of the House. Absolutely. Yeah, and, okay. and, but, but, but normally, legislation can only be tabled by the government. But he allowed 
just backbench members of parliament to table legislation, all of it designed to stop Brexit from happening mm. and to force us into having a second referendum. So, so what I'm, was it? I'm very pleased he's gone. Yeah, <laughs> what was it like uh, uh, at 11 o'clock last Friday? Just amazing. I was in, I'd booked Parliament Square for the event, and we had 100,000 people come, um, despite the fact it was late at night. Uh, they'd all dressed up. I think every eccentric in England had turned up. Uh, people dressed up as Winston Churchill and uh, Union Jack flags. And, uh, and yeah, we had the big countdown, and suddenly 11 o'clock was there. And, and for me, I mean, this has been 27 years. I've campaigned for this for 27 years, over 20 years in the EU Parliament. Uh, and it was just uh, the most extraordinary feeling. And, and whilst there is still work to do, We've broken the back of this. We are never going back into that globalist mm -hmm. project. So, yeah, euphoria. Um, I have to say euphoria. And from those on the other side of the argument, uh, most of them actually accept now that it's happened, finally, mm -hmm. three and a half years on. Well, we have three and a half years with Donald Trump, and half the country doesn't accept it just will not accept it. But it's the same game. Yeah, it's it the is. same game. I mean, what you've had here since Trump was elected is the attempt to delegitimize the election of the president. You know, mm -hmm. again, you've had the same Russian conspiracy theories mm -hmm. and all the mm -hmm. rest of it. Um, and, and yeah, some who simply cannot accept Trump as a human being. We've had the same with Brexit, but I think now, I, I think we're through the worst of it now, but it's took a long time. So, uh, Boris Johnson mm. compared a lot to Donald Trump. Tell me the difference. Oh, look, Boris is a metro liberal. I mean, he is very much on the left of the British Conservative Party. In the past, he's talked about huge amnesties for illegal immigrants. I mean, Boris is not Donald Trump. But Boris, whether through conviction or whether through opportunism, I don't know. But Boris came down in 16, when the referendum was coming down the tracks at us, Boris decided to join the Leave campaign. And it was very, very important that he did. You know, he, you know he's got a constituency of people that mm -hmm. support him. He's also rather good fun, which, which not enough politicians are. And Boris now is utterly committed. You know, he's promised the British people he's going to deliver a, pro you know, a proper break from the European Union. And if he doesn't deliver it, his reputation will fall off a cliff in the same way that Theresa Mays did. So, as I say, whether it's through conviction, whether it's through political pragmatism, he is now utterly committed to this. And, hey, we've got a prime minister saying the right thing. So let me just stir this up a bit because uh, the guy who um, uh, is, is my right hand is from Scotland mm -hmm. uh, and proudly Scottish. And... Uh, Let's just say the Queen isn't necessarily, the royal family not necessarily his favorite thing. And they've been trying to break free forever from... Oh, yeah, but it's, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but it's, <laughs> this is all false. This is all false. Is um, it? I've got, I've got, there, I, because I've, the, I've got to mind my language here. <laughs> this is, look, look, the Scottish National Party mm. say... Swept. Say we should, we should leave the United Kingdom, right. but join the European Union. That's not independence. You can't be an independent country if you govern from Brussels. It's a totally false prospectus. <laughs> and I tell you what, the one thing Boris needs to do, 
if he gets back our fishing rights and gives Scotland 200 miles of the North Sea that's theirs, it'll be the end of a separatist argument. That'd be great. The idea of a European Union, or what at some time people used to call the United States of Europe, mm -hmm. that is from the Atlantic to the Urals, there will be one coming together. This is not a new idea. This, call it a utopian vision, has been around in Europe for as many number of years or centuries as there has been the emergence of the nation-state system. It is, after all, Europe. It is in European politics mm -hmm. that the nation-state was invented, so to speak. Right. And it emerged at the end of the long religious warfare in the middle of the 17th century, what we call the Treaty of Westphalia, 1648, and the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire and the, and the, body, and the body politics of the Holy Roman Empire, the emergence of states like France and Spain, and then, you know, the, the principalities of what eventually, 200 years later, more than 200 years later, would become Germany the Netherlands, Scandinavia, all of these emerge as independent principalities under its own prince. Right. And later on, as the process of democracy, democratization began, they became states. The unique thing about Britain is that the Britain had become a state, in the, an independent entity of itself. You might go as far back to the Norman invasion of Britain, 1066, and the emergence of Britain as an independent, autonomous, sovereign kingdom, you know. But coming to our time, that is to the modern time, that is the 20th century, it was the terrible devastation and shock of the two world wars that basically led to, one might say, the suicide of Britain, or the hurricane of Britain. It was a massive destruction of Britain, World War I, and then 20 years later, World War II. And together, the thing that haunted the European leaders was and came to be that to provide for peace to provide for what Immanuel Kant had at one time called the German philosopher from the 18th century, perpetual peace, we need a supranational organization. We need an organization that can dictate the terms of peace and through diplomacy resolve conflicts among states. So the first experiment was the League of Nations. But the League did not go anywhere First, the Americans did not join it. And then secondly, the League could not deal with the crisis that emerged in the period after, that is in the 1920s and 30s, that led to the Second World War. And so after the Second World War, the United Nations, but then within this rubric, this devastation, this ruin of Europe in the 1940s, once again the idea of a United States of Europe emerged. And the idea of United States of Europe was that it is France and Germany has to come together. They have to be the pillar, you know. And that idea was talked about, bandied about, but Cold War came in between, 
you know, Europe had to be rebuilt after the war, the Marshall Plan, the rebuilding of Europe, the division of Europe, that was with the Iron Curtain that came down. But the idea of the United States of Europe was alive, was talked about. And indeed, Churchill was one of the spokesmen. He, he said that the best thing would be for Europeans to work out the agreement to bring about a United States of Europe with France and Germany coming together and, you know, burying their hatchets against each other. These have been the two countries that had been at loggerhead. But about Britain, very interesting what Churchill said that we welcome, we encourage, we would like to see a United States of Europe that ends the nightmare of wars and especially the wars that have happened in the 20th, first half of the 20th century and now with the nuclear weapon system could become totally suicidal. But then he said about Britain, he said, however, we, Britain, we, though we are with Europe, we are not part of Europe. There is the English Channel. There is a separate history. And he was always very precise about this, that Britain, though, is with Europe, but it is not of Europe. Well, realistically, it has a very different culture, too, doesn't it, at its base? It, well, it has a very individualistic culture versus the more collective culture the, the, of Europe. The, each of the European members of the European Union have different cultures. Portugal's culture is different from Romania. Hungary's culture is different from, say, the Netherlands. So what, why, why did this experiment, why does it seem to be failing then, if, uh, if this idea was so great to begin with? Well, I mean, European Union has not failed at the moment. It's still very much there. It is Britain that has withdrew. And the question is, why did Britain, first of all, join the European Union? It was a conservative prime minister, Edward Heath, who signed up to join the European Economic Community. You see, European Union began first by setting up a common market. Then it became a European Economic Community. This is the height of the Cold War. The world is divided between Soviet Union, communism, international communism on the one side, and on the other side, the free world, the capitalist system, the democracies, and Europe is divided in half. So it is the western half of Europe that is coming together, first through common market, and that was the EEC to which the British prime minister, a conservative prime minister, signed up to join. Now, mind you, again, we are going through history over here. Britain, at the end of the Second World War, was still the head of an empire, the British Empire. And not only the head of an empire, also the head of a commonwealth, English-speaking commonwealth. The Anglosphere, basically. Correct. So by 1973, when Edward Heath, a conservative prime minister, signed up to join the European Economic Community, the empire was gone. There was no, no more an empire. The empire was gone. There was a commonwealth that had come together of independent former colonies of Britain, like India, like the Caribbean, like some of the African states, including Canada and Australia and New Zealand. We are Commonwealth countries, mm -hmm. okay? So Britain was still the head of the Commonwealth. The crown is the crown leader. The queen is the head of the Commonwealth. So, but in 1973, when Britain joined the European Economic Community, the argument was that Britain would become part of the European market. The market of the empire had gone. So Britain was looking for a place 
in the European market. However, there was not a strong consensus behind this view. Maggie Thatcher warned against it because Maggie Thatcher sensed that the European economic community would be evolving more and more in the direction of what people had talked about as United States of Europe. That is a common market, a common parliament, a common bureaucracy, ultimately a common currency. Okay. It took more than 20 years from the moment Britain joined the European Economic Community in 1973 and ratified it in 1975 election to the emergence of European Union. You see, the European Union emerged formally after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1992. And then there was a push for the European currency, the EU, that happened in the 1990s. Now, as all of these things came together, the argument, at least theoretically, is that it would be a federation. What is the United States of America? It's a federation of states. Mm -hmm. In its federation of states, there are two levels of government. There are what are the states, the 50 so states. So they can act in their own self-interest in their local... Constitutionally, they issues, have their yeah. own governance. That is, they have their own state assemblies, their own state house, their own state legislature and senate. And then there is the central government, that is, the federation, the United States of America, and the office in Washington, the government in Washington. So there are two levels, and the representation is, again, two levels. You have the House of Representatives, which is based on population, and then you have the Senate, which is basically the representation of the states. Right. All the states are equally represented with two senators. So now transpose that idea into the United States of Europe. There should be a parliament that represents the population of Europe. And that's what the European Parliament became. And then there should be the second level, which represents the individual member states in an upper chamber. Right. But the European Union did not have an upper chamber. Yeah, that, was the, that was the fatal flaw, really. One of the fatal it? flaws. Plus, you know... It was being managed and run by what is called the European Commission, which is a cabinet with the European Commissioner. At the present, it is Mr. Juncker, but he's an unelected official. He's appointed by the member states or the member states that have the biggest leverage, which is basically France and Germany. And then you have the coming together of the European currency, which means a European banking system. Once you have a common currency as the Americans have, then that common currency has to be managed by one central body. In the case of the United States, it's the Federal Reserve that manages the dollar, the American currency. Similarly, in the European case, it will be one central European bank that will do it, which therefore means that individual states cannot have their own economic policy, they cannot have their own trade policy, they cannot have their own currency. You see, mm -hmm. it will be driven by a central organization. In the case of the United States, again, it is Washington that does that. You know, uh, while this individual states can do the local affairs, when it comes to national and international affairs, it is one central body that does it. It is the Congress and the Federal Reserve. However, in the case of the European experience, 
the problems began when the individual member states could not manage their own politics, their own concerns. And Britain has over a thousand years of their own separate history. Right. That's what Churchill talked about. The Britain is with Europe. Britain is not part of Europe. So you go back all the way to Magna Carta, or you go back all the way to 1066. The evolution of British history, the evolution of British parliamentary democracy is a unique development that has no similarity to what has happened in the European continent, whether it is Germany, whether it's France, Spain, Italy, Portugal, etc. So Britain and the British people wanted to maintain their own identity, to maintain their own separateness. And they couldn't do that while remaining inside the European Union, whether it was immigration <laughs> policy. It's a funny it way of looking at identity politics, isn't it? Precisely, yeah. precisely, in the larger scale. And so the campaign to get out of the European Union was to restore British sovereignty in its own affairs, in all of its own affairs. And from that point of view, this is a big blow to globalists, which is what mm -hmm. Britain delivered. And similarly, I mean, there's that connection. The British decision that was implemented on January 31st has a resonance in the case of American politics because Trump is all about anti-globalism. So you've heard the definition of crazy, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, the Democrats invented a new kind of crazy, knowing the outcome of an event well in advance and still expecting a different result. That's impeachment, the worst planned adventure since the Donner Party. <laughs> the Dems blew all their energy on a loser's bet, one that made the Iowa mess possible. Instead of wowing America, they fell flat on their faces because they were distracted. I return, I return to Greg's rule. Republicans run things, Democrats ruin them. The difference is one letter, which stands for impeachment. So once again, the losers return to their hallucinations. The snakes on the wall, they're real if you're Adam Schiff, because now Trump could offer Alaska to the Russians. Trump could offer Alaska to the Russians in exchange for support in the next election. <laughs> Damn, Adam's so nutty, he farts trail mix. But hey, it beats moving to Mar-a-Lago or decide to move to Mar-a-Lago permanently and let Jared Kushner run the country. So why cling to these crazy predictions? Because they don't exist, which means you can't disprove them. And the response will always be, well, you just wait. They're like imaginary mice and shifts the crazy coot on the table screaming. But those mad ravings had us waiting for the stock market crash, a tyranny, World War III, four and five, all paranoid nightmares that never came. Instead, all we got were stock market highs, trade deals, dead terrorists, and jobs. And since those successes are under Trump, the delusions only deepen. Without a real vision beyond anger, they cling to these mental phantoms. Look, early on, we told the Dems impeachment was a dead fish. We said, don't follow Adam. He's selling you drugs that only end in bad trips. But did they listen? Nope. To them, bad drugs are better than no drugs, which is why they'll be back in the lab coming up with a new paranoia pill. But we know not to gulp them. Let them have them all because we saw it coming, but they have it coming. We went through hell, unfairly, did nothing wrong, did nothing wrong. I've done things wrong in my life, I will admit. <laughs> Not purposely, but I've done things wrong. But this is what the end result is. Acquittal. 
You saw it coming, I saw it coming, but the media and the Dems faked it because it fed their base and their bottom line. <laughs> and when it all fell apart, so did they. Then Trump did his presser. It was a doozy. But hey, this is politics. This is politics. And we were treated unbelievably unfairly. And you have to understand, uh, we first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bull <laughs> yeah. Kind of pissed we have to bleep that. You know, Rob, I, keep, I can't help but notice that the response to Trump never changes. It's like, oh yeah. my God, he said right. this. I can't believe he said BS. Yeah. It's like they, they live in a world where they never hear these things and coming from a president, how awful. It, it's been three or four years, move on. Well, also, I mean, look, the guy's funny. <laughs> a yeah. friend of mine writes for one of those late night comedy shows and he's uh, sort of a Trump uh, supporter. And he, they're all watching, all the writers are watching Trump give one of those speeches and Trump's making a bunch of jokes and he turns to his fellow comedy writers and says, yeah. oh, I mean, okay, come on, the guy's funny. Yeah. And like, yeah. No, he's not. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to like him to think he's funny. I mean, and I think that is ultimately is the problem for the Democrats is that you have a bunch of people who don't like him. I mean, I don't like him, right? Yeah. But I mean, I like three percent unemployment. Yes. <laughs> I like two hundred thousand new jobs. Yeah. I mean, I like that. I like I like all the things he said in the State of the Union, which mm -hmm. are genuine successes that any president has a right to claim. Yeah. And he did it. And they just what do they have? They have. Well, things are good, but we're mad as hell about it. Yeah, I mean, you raise the point. You don't have you. You don't have to like his words no. and like his deeds. It's it's. But saying this forever, that in fact there might be a correlation between his obnoxiousness and the success. Maybe. Has anybody thought about that? Americans didn't hire him to be their friend. No, they hired him to do the job. Yes, and he 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 did his like four year review performance review uh -huh. on Tuesday night, and it was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I can't get a raise. You know. Yeah. As the world bears witness tonight, America is a land of heroes. This is a place where greatness is born, where destinies are forged, and where legends come to life. This is the home of Thomas Edison and Teddy Roosevelt, of many great generals, including Washington, Pershing, Patton, and MacArthur. This is the home of Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, Amelia Earhart, Harriet Tubman, the Wright brothers, Neil Armstrong, and so many more. This is the country where children learn names like Wyatt Earp, Davy Crockett, and Annie Oakley. This is the place where the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth and where Texas Patriots made their last stand at the Alamo. The beautiful, beautiful Alamo. The American nation was carved out of the vast frontier by the toughest, strongest, fiercest, and most determined men and women ever to walk on the face of the earth. Our ancestors braved the unknown, tamed the wilderness, settled the Wild West, lifted millions from poverty, disease, and hunger, vanquished tyranny and fascism, ushered the world to new heights of science and medicine, laid down the railroads, dug out the canals, raised up the skyscrapers, 
And ladies and gentlemen, our ancestors built the most exceptional republic ever to exist in all of human history. And we are making it greater than ever before. This is our glorious and magnificent inheritance. We are Americans. We are pioneers. We are the pathfinders. We settled the new world. We built the modern world. And we change history forever by embracing the eternal truth that everyone is made equal by the hand of Almighty God. America is the place where anything can happen. America is the place where anyone can rise. And here, on this land, on this soil, on this continent, the most incredible dreams come true. This nation is our canvas, and this country is our masterpiece. We look at tomorrow and see unlimited frontiers just waiting to be explored. Our brightest discoveries are not yet known. Our most thrilling stories are not yet told. Our grandest journeys are not yet made. The American age, the American epic, the American adventure has only just begun. Our spirit is still young. The sun is still rising. God's grace is still shining. And my fellow Americans, the best is yet to come. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. Thank you very much. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. So Donald Trump gave an absolutely flawless State of the Union address, and some of the things that he did in that address were things that I would never have expected to hear. But his, his conclusion, of course, was amazing. The best is yet to come. You had some comments about that, Salim? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Bob. Um, I have more or less watch most of the annual speeches going all the way back to Ronald Reagan, the State of the Union speeches. And truly, this speech by President Trump was absolutely magnificent. To me, as I sat listening to him and then reflecting upon the speech later on, Trump was not only the president, Trump was the poet of America, and I was recalling Whitman. It had the cadence, the sound, the rhythm, the, the perfection of language, almost the perfection of language, I should say, of a Whitman poem, especially the peroration. I mean, the main bulk of the speech was Trump 
and an election year recounting the achievement of his presidency over the past three years. And it has been, as he said, the great comeback story of America. That is, uh, eight years of Obama administration or almost 30 years since the end of the Cold War of Republican, Democrat, uniparty administration that had basically flatlined the American economy to uh, annual growth of under 2%. Trump, in three years, has turned it around. I mean, the unemployment figures are the lowest in 50 years. The wage growth, the uh, stock market boom, uh, the, the, the basic st structure of the American economy has uh, been turned around in a manner that is of historic, historic level on the one side. On the other side, there is what President Reagan used to call famously the morning in America. Trump was celebrating the morning in America after a long twilight, you might say, that had been the past uh, Obama administration. And yet, and yet, um, America is heavily divided. The impeachment, you know, Trump, mm -hmm. as he was speaking, everybody knew that the next day, within a matter of less than 24 hours, the Senate would be sitting to vote upon uh, right. the two articles of impeachment. So that there, there was the tension in that room. Uh, there was the clear division between the Republicans and the Democrats in the room. The Democratic women were all dressed in white with Nancy Pelosi sitting behind scowling at Trump at every word he was saying. She was absolutely embarrassing. And, 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 and she topped it off by standing up and ripping the speech, yeah. you know, in, in full gaze of 100 million people watching uh, the State of the Union speech. <clears throat> so, yes, it was in that sense uh, a, a, a dramatic, in the worst sense of the word, dramatic one can use in a very formal occasion that the president gives a truly uplifting and a magnificent speech, and he introduces, as presidents have done, people who are invited to come and be present during the State of the Union speech. Uh, and they were remarkable moment. The 100-year-old airmen, the black airmen, you know, in Second World War who had flown something like 300 missions was there in the room that he introduced, who was uh, made a brigadier general. There was um, the, the mother with two young uh, uh, children, uh, a, a soldier's wife with a soldier in deployment. And then, unbeknownst to her, her husband walked down. Oh, it was a family was, was united. Tremendous showmanship all the way around. And, and but the perfect timing. Beyond and the perfect politics. symbolism yeah. and, the, and the significance. And then to cap it all off was the uh, uh, honoring uh, Rush Limbaugh, oh. uh, the, the icon of, I suppose, many of us, of mm -hmm. you, of all of us who speak on the radio, who are in the public. Uh, this man, an absolute genius when it comes to radio show, uh, who single-handedly developed the conservative talk show and has a daily following, 
that is almost one two thirds the size of Can- Canadian population in excess of 20 yeah. million. It is it is mind boggling. And and Rush, we we learned, has been diagnosed with a stage four lung cancer, and President Trump, no other president would do it. Well, Trump uh, Trump invited him to the State of the Union, and not only then said that he is going to be giving him uh, uh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian award, but then had his wife, the First Lady, sitting on the, in, the, in, in the gallery, stand up and pin it all around the yeah. neck of uh, Rush Limbaugh. Well, I'll tell you another event that happened there that totally surprised me was Trump um, vowing to fight socialism in the West, as he put it. Mm-hmm. And um, he wanted to reverse the policy. You're talking about reversing the policy on Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and talking about getting rid of Nicolas Maduro. Uh, that's, that's a stunning thing to say in a State of the Union address. And then oh, having yeah, the real leader, Juan uh, Guido, yes. who was present there, I mean, this, this was unprecedented. Yes. And then talking about... Um, establishing a, f- a space force on top of everything else and, and vowing, it sounded like the Kennedy years, we're going to put a man or a woman on the moon and we want to plant the first flag on Mars. These are extraordinarily positive goals instead of, you know. And, it, and, and the way he pulled it together in his summing up uh, that, that while... Uh, the stories of about America's comeback and America's comeback story talks about America in the world, but the best is yet to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, that there is more stories to be written, more experiments to be done, more buildings to be built, more journeys to be made, and the best is yet to come. So, as I was mentioning to you, Bob, I have been sitting and watching State of the Union speeches going all the way back to President Reagan when I was an undergraduate student. So this past 40 years, ironically, 1980 was the year Reagan was elected president and 2020 State of the Union for Trump. This is the 40th year, you know, right. 40 years separate them. But Trump, it seems to me, has exceeded exceeded in in achievement what Reagan set out to do. And maybe there will be, again, future president who might exceed it. But in our lifetime, what we are seeing is, and I want to emphasize this, the greatness of President Trump comes from the people of America, the love that he has demonstrated. He truly and genuinely care and love America and Americans. And he makes no you know, he doesn't dissemble. He doesn't hide it. No. He demonstrates it openly. And he's this is what is... Ta- he's completely the opposite of how the Democrats have painted him. They are terrified now because if he gets the black vote anywhere in the teens, mm-hmm. he could go as high as 30%. But if he gets anywhere in the teens, 15%, 16%, it's over for the Democratic Party. You know, now, now, do you think there's any chance that things could turn around? I mean, it's still early in the year. What what sort of unprecedented event might happen <laughs> that could turn things against him? One, one thing I've found about conservatives in general is they often don't follow through on their political victories. Well, the difference between him and all the previous Republican presidents, 
and because he's the outsider too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why there has been such massive opposition against him by the Democrats, by the deep state, because the deep states are part of the democratic establishment, by the corporate media, by the business oligarchs, uh, by the sure. academia. This whole convergence of the American establishment elite against President Trump, they might not they might, they will. They will come up with fake news. They will come up with fake accusation. Already this Roger Stone issue, they're talking about bringing uh, again articles of impeachment against Trump and against his attorney general, Bill Barr. But here I might say to you, the troubling thing on the horizon in the same month of what we have been talking about is the emergence of coronavirus. I would say coronavirus is a black swan of global politics right now, of Chinese politics definitely because it come out of China, but it is the black swan. We don't know in what ways the coronavirus might impact upon the global economy as it has already impacted upon the Chinese economy and how that might be like a domino effect going through the supply chain because China is now the world's second largest economy and has been the center of the supply chain that has emerged over the last 30 years, which is what President Trump has been trying to reverse Mm -hmm. and how that might affect the world economy, the economy in the immediate surrounding countries around China and then further removed from China, particularly the European economy. Josh Phillips is a senior investigative reporter with Epoch Times. We're talking to him today about the coronavirus. Josh, tell us about the coronavirus. First of all, when was it first detected, first discovered? So initial reports were claiming it came from this Chinese seafood market, but it's now turning out that the initial reports had nothing to do with the seafood market. This came from December 8, actually, and the first case is traced to December 1st. It turns out that people who were talking about it in China were being arrested. Eight doctors were arrested for talking about it. And so it appears there was a cover-up for a long time. And, you know, kind of late in the game, the Chinese authorities did respond to it. By that time, pretty much five million people had already left Wuhan. They locked down the city and were in a pretty difficult situation now as it stands. What caused this coronavirus? Uh, there's mixed analysis. Initial reports were claiming it came from a live seafood or a live uh, animal market. You know, there was the bat soup rumor. That does not appear to be accurate, although bats do carry a type of coronavirus. The, uh, currently, the origin is unknown. There, are, there has been lots of speculation. Some people say it's a bioweapon that escaped a lab. Some say it was a vaccine experiment, escaped a lab. Keep in mind that one of China's main laboratories that researches viruses like these, a P4 laboratory, is in Wuhan, about 20 miles away from that market that they said the case originally started from. At this time, though, we do not know where it, we, we can't say for sure where it actually came from. Josh, how disturbing is it that people are not sure where it came from? It's pretty disturbing. Uh, some people have noted that There's a couple issues. When you're talking about the Chinese Communist Party's narrative that it came from this live market, that's problematic because they shut down the live market, which means that when foreign inspectors go there and go and see what happened, it's shut down. There's there's nothing there to look at, nothing to see. So there's there's no way for them to trace it. 
Um, some analysts have noted that if it did in fact come from the market, as Chinese authorities were saying, uh, you know, the way they shut it down would have exacerbated the problem because you have all these pests like rats, different types of, uh, you know, fecal matter, different types of things. Um, even it's rumors now that it, you know, could be spread through even blood supplies because pregnant women are transmitting it to their uh, babies in China, allegedly. And so if they did not clean up that market properly, it would have actually spread the virus even worse. And it, it appears they pretty hastily shut it down. Uh, but if it's a bioweapon, if it was something escaped from this lab, it's even a bigger deal. Uh, even if it wasn't a bioweapon, even if it did escape from the lab through normal means, this is, it's pretty bad on the Chinese Communist Party that you know a slip-up would have allowed something like that to happen. So we'll have to see what the final verdict is, but it's not looking good for the Chinese Communist Party. Josh, how does it spread? How do humans get it? Well, it's a coronavirus, like, like a flu. You know, coughing, sneezing, that kind of thing. But it appears that it's even worse than SARS in some regards. There have been reports that even, for example, bodily fluids, like even the fluid on your eyes could carry it. As I mentioned, there were reports just recently in China uh, saying that women are transmitting it to unborn babies, meaning that it could be contained even in the blood supply, which means that if you get this virus, it's not just something in the lungs. This is uh, a bit more serious than any kind of common uh, coronavirus. How deadly is it? The various estimates. Now, the Chinese Communist Party is reporting fairly low numbers, still higher than what they reported on SARS. Even with SARS, there was a cover-up. If you look at Western analysis and leaked numbers, some say as high as 10% death rate. We can't say for sure, mainly because the numbers coming out of China are not reliable. There have been videos of people in China at the hospitals showing bodies and, you know, bodies stacked, uh, bodies next to patients, you know, living and dead next to each other. That we, we actually, Epoch Times, we just made phone calls into Wuhan. They said the crematoriums are working 24-7 to dispose of bodies. Uh, there are some mathematical estimates on what that would mean. Uh, some, some put the death rate as high as 24,000-ish. Uh, but if you look at Chinese official numbers, it's only in a few hundred. How is it treated, and should people in Western countries and in America worry? There is currently no official treatment for the, for the new coronavirus. But doctors in Thailand claim that um, they've been able to treat it using drugs for the normal flu and AIDS. There are rumors it did come from a lab. There, there is evidence of, let's say, human manipulation within the sequence of the virus. There might be something there. How difficult is it to diagnose, and is there a problem with doctors misdiagnosing this? So in China right now, one of the, they're using these testing kits to diagnose the virus. And there are various reports on this. One of the big problems is that early on, the Chinese Communist Party had limited numbers of testing kits. And so in other words, the number of cases they were even capable of reporting were limited to the number of testing kits they were being given. And if people were not able to be tested, they were told, go home, quarantine yourself, lay down. They were not given a hospital bed. They were not counted among the numbers. Josh, why does this seem to keep happening in China? There's lots of poverty in the world. There are a lot of third world countries. Why China? 
Hard to say. I mean, again, this goes back to speculation on one end that this was a virus that escaped one of the labs. And keep in mind that China's first level four virus research facility is located in Wuhan. That's the P4, uh, P4 lab, which is under the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which does in fact have some ties to the People's Liberation Army, uh, the, you know, the official military of the Communist Party. Uh, if you want to get into why it's happening in China, other than the possibility of an escape, well, hard to say, nothing conclusive yet, we'll have to see. Finally, Josh, how does this end? It's going to end in a few ways. One, we're going to have to see whether the Chinese numbers are accurate, because if they're not accurate and the virus is more widespread than initially thought, it could be spreading outside of China, and it's possible that the quarantine internally was not enough. Hopefully that will not happen. Uh, there's also a possibility that people in China are going to wake up and see the Chinese Communist Party for what it is, because you have th I th close to 30 cities on lockdown now in China to various extents, reports and videos of people being rounded up, thrown in these uh, police vans, and people, also you have Chinese police going door to door and taking people who show symptoms of the virus, and so people are not trusting right now of Chinese authorities. Josh Phillips, senior investigative reporter, Epoch Times. Josh, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate it. A hey, real pleasure. Thank you. Take, for instance, just as an example, the German auto industry is heavily now enmeshed with, embedded with the Chinese auto parts maker. And we don't know how the coronavirus will impact upon that industry, whether it will shut down, whether the Chinese will be able to deliver on time, because all of these productions are time-based production, you know, on-time production, maintaining the inventory, maintaining the stock, whether the Chinese will be able to deliver. The Chinese don't know how to handle this case. I mean, here we are dealing with a situation, a communist country. The very definition of a communist country is it is a closed society. It is a fierce society. Information is not available. It's censored. And to recall, Bob, you remember in 1988, 89, the Chernobyl incident happened in Soviet Union. The meltdown of the nuclear core of the Chernobyl reactors was a huge, huge crisis. Nobody knew what would be the immediate effect and the long-term effect. But what was one effect that happened was that the Soviet Union could not manage the Chernobyl crisis, and three years later, there was no Soviet Union. It inwardly collapsed. There were other factors there, but the immediate, most proximate factor, in some sense, was the Chernobyl crisis. So this is the crisis of the Chinese Communist Party the crisis of the Chinese leadership. You know, China was faced with all of 2019, or particularly the second half of 2019, with escalating crises in Hong Kong, where China was trying to stamp down democracy and freedom, whatever limited democracy and freedom based on individual rights the people of Hong Kong had, and the Chinese were trying to stamp it down. Same thing in China's relationship with Taiwan. And now, with the coronavirus, what that would mean is anybody's speculation. And on that speculative note, we'll have to wrap it up for round one of our two-part discussion with Salim Mansour. Round two continues and concludes next week when you are invited to join us as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. 
Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Alrighty now, it is time for... The best show of your life ever! You want a victory lap? You got one. Seriously, this was the best week ever. You had everything. Trump crushes impeachment. Nancy throws a fit. The Democrats implode. All that's missing is an invasion of space creatures that taste just like Cinnabons but look like Ryan Seacrest. 